Good morning, everyone. Is that working? Oh, mask, yes. I'm so used to it. It was quite strange coming home to the UK after being in Korea for so long last year, because in Korea, masks are everywhere. It's not just in the shops, it's in the streets. And I even went um, hiking with a Joy's pastor from a church. And we were going up the mountain, and I realized, this is ridiculous. I'm going up a mountain, and I'm wearing a mask. <laughs> so, I was, <laughs> so I took it off, and if I saw someone coming down the path towards it, put it back on. <clears throat> so <clears throat> I got used to it. Um, yes, oh, it's great to be with you again. It's been a while. Um, is this too close to me? Echoing, okay, maybe just echoing my ears or something. Um, yes, I'm, I'm going to be back here for a bit. Um, after, after a few decades of working with YWAM and teaching Bible, leading Bible schools, doing all that sort of thing, I'm finally going to get some qualifications. So I've got two decades of experience, but no letters behind my name to prove to anyone that I have such experience. Um, so this is a, it happened a time in our family life that it could happen. And so I'm doing a degree with London School of Theology to finally get some qualifications and see what happens then. Um, yes, yeah, so I'm glad that I get to spend some time with you again, because it's been a while. Yes, family's okay. Um, everybody else, hopefully I'm going to drag them along at some point. Uh, <laughs> you can see them again. Especially you can meet Vicky. Uh, our new one, yes. And Jenny is now huge. Um, yeah. Okay. So I was talking to Nick earlier about how, how you prepare for um, sermons and teachings. And usually when I prepare, um, it's kind of similar to, to Nick. I'm usually, I'm mulling over the message until, you know, the day before, sometimes even the morning before. Um, but this week I had to do things earlier um, because yesterday was a family day. It was my twin nephew's 21st. And so the whole family came together from all over the country. Grandparents finally got to meet Vicky for the first time. So that was exciting. So I spent the whole of yesterday not thinking about this morning, <laughs> which is very unusual when I'm about to, to, to preach. Um, so I was having breakfast this morning and started thinking about it again. And suddenly these ideas popped into my head, which I wish I'd had three days ago, um, because it might have made my PowerPoint more interesting. Um, then the reason was I was, as, um, I was watch, having breakfast and I was watching on my phone, um, there's a new um, series on Amazon called Reacher about Jack Reacher. He, basically, if you don't know, he's, like a, he's an ex-army detective, silent type, built like a house, whose main ways of finding out crimes is punching people. Um, so I'm quite enjoying watching it. And another thought came in my head. Over the last few days, I've seen a lot of um, trailers for the new Death on, Death on the Nile movie that's going to be coming out soon. And then suddenly, these two ideas came together with what I'm going to talk about. This is a whodunit. This woman caught an adultery story, we have a whodunit. You, um, I suddenly pictured Jesus with a Hercule moustache, the Perot moustache, kind of sitting there on the ground. It's like, who is guilty? It's like, who is the guilty one? It's like, the guilty one is, is before you. You know, usually, like, the guilty one is in this room, that kind of thing. But the guilty people were there in front of Jesus. But the question is, who was it? You know, was it the, actually the woman caught in adultery, adultery, or was it the other people, or everybody? And so, 
next time I preach this sermon, <laughs> it's going to be a very Hercule Poirot kind of theme. <laughs> um, and it's going to be a whodunit. But, so, but keep that in mind, because I think this is a good way of thinking about this story, is whodunit. Who is the guilty party here? Because it's kind of interesting. All right, I need to click. There we go. Right, so this is actually quite a controversial chapter, if you don't know, um, both for what it is and what's inside of it. And, and the reason is, along with another part of the Gospels, the long ending of Mark, it's actually not in the oldest manuscripts. And so it's quite probable that John didn't write this story about Jesus originally, but somebody, probably one of his disciples, added um, it later. But we do know it is a kind of genuine story about Jesus, because other people write a similar kind of event that happened. Other church fathers write about it. But it's interesting, this is one that kind of snuck in, probably from one of John's disciples. Um, so that means as soon as you start looking up this chapter or this passage in any commentary or anything, most of the time is spent about textual criticism. <laughs> before you have, to, you have to kind of ream through all of this, is it in there, who said this, who's that, before you actually get to what the story is about. Um, but it is an cr- incredible story. And like I said, it's a genuine story about Jesus, but maybe not genuine from John, um, that kind of thing. So it's quite controversial in that kind of way. People talk about it a lot. It's also kind of suspicious. And what I mean by that, that whodunit kind of idea again, it's suspicious because it's quite a suspicious story. And I mean, what I mean by that is that what the scribes or the teachers of the law and the Pharisees are saying to Jesus is a little bit suspicious. This is not as straightforward as this seems. Um, someone is caught in the act of adultery, which probably is quite a rare thing to happen. And you don't want to dwell on that too much, but the chances of catching somebody in the act of adultery is quite rare. And he's caught, she's caught in the act of adultery, just so happens to be caught by a large group of scribes and Pharisees. And she's caught in adultery, but it's only her. There's no man dragged before Jesus. And as the writing actually says, this was a trap. The whole question, the question was a trap. But you have to kind of think, was actually the whole situation a trap? Is this kind of some kind of setup that the scribes and Pharisees have got together to try and incriminate Jesus? Oh, yes, I must remember to do both. Thank you. Um, Yeah, despite of all that, this is a wonderful story about somebody's personal interaction with Jesus. Because I think there's kind of two stories going on here. There's this trap situation with the scribes and the Pharisees and Jesus, but in the end it's actually Jesus and a woman. And how a meeting, you know, a very awkward, humiliating, shameful meeting actually changes this woman's life. And it's actually a story that tells us a lot about Jesus. There's a story, if you like, behind the story. And that is, this is a clash of teachers. I'm, I'm glad you actually read from the NIV, um, because it, in the NIV it does say teachers of the law, uh, whereas the Bible I've been using, it says scribes. 
you know, scribes were the teachers of the law. That was their job. Um, and so this is a, a clash between teachers. Who teaches the Torah properly? Who upholds it properly? Who interprets it properly? Who correctly teaches it? Is it Jesus or is it these scribes, these teachers of law? So there's a lot of things going on in this story. It's, it's a woman caught in adultery. It's a whodunit kind of story. There's a personal meeting between a woman and Jesus. There's this trap being set up. But it also, it's like, who is the proper teacher? Who is the best teacher? It's taking place in the temple, which is interesting. Um, I think sometimes when you see it on movies, it's kind of on a roadside and Jesus is writing on the dust. But no, he's in the temple. And, and he's actually in the temple, in the place where teachers sit and teach. So this happens when Jesus is teaching in the temple. And he's, did you notice there's sit, he's sitting, he's sitting, he's sitting. Sitting is repeated. And he, he carries on sitting throughout the story, which means he's teaching throughout the story. He's in the traditional place and position of teaching. Um, so he's sitting in the temple, teaching a crowd, and then this happens. The scribes, the teachers of the law, and the Pharisees, they come together, and they br- drag this woman who's caught in the act of adultery and bring him to him. And like I mentioned, the scribes, their job was to copy, interpret, and teach the law. That's what they're paid to do. Though most of them are very rich, so I don't think they need to get paid much anyway, but that, that's what they were meant to do. They were also, the reason why they're with the Pharisees is because they were part of the Pharisee movement. Um, scribes were Pharisees. You know, Pharisees, you can kind of think of it as a denomination in Judaism. You could be lots of things. You could be a merchant and a Pharisee. Um, you could be a shopkeeper and a Pharisee. But most of the scribes were Pharisees in kind of their theology. And it was these, these people, these scribes, these pharisaical scribes, they're the ones that came up with the traditions of the Torah that Jesus keeps on clashing about, um, the traditions of the elders, like kind of interpretations of the law. That was one of their jobs. They created them so that you basically, you have to break a whole lot of mini traditions before you get to the actual law. They're the ones who came up with it. So their reputation, their job, everything about them is wrapped up in the Torah, in the law of Moses. And then you have this woman who's accused of adultery and has been said to be caught in the act and brought before Jesus, and not just before before Jesus, also all of the people that Jesus was teaching. You know, this, this would be a humiliating thing for this woman. She's been dragged by these group of teachers of the law, to the temple, and there's Jesus, and then there's this whole crowd of people listening to Jesus teach. And they say to Jesus, Moses teaches us, of course, Moses is the ultimate teacher of the Torah. He taught us, he commanded us to stone this woman because she's been caught in adultery. What do you say? And this is the trap. Jesus, of course, was famous at this point for his love of sinners. And this is pointed out on many times in the Gospels, how he hang out with sinners and he 
looked after them. He reached out to them whenever people left them alone. He's known for this. He's known for his messages of love and compassion. He's known for saying things, judge not lest you be judged. You know, he's, this is what he's known for. And so this woman is a perfect trap for Jesus. This is someone who is a sinner who has been caught in the act. She is guilty. So whatever Jesus says, yes or no, the scribes and Pharisees win. That's what they think anyway. So he, Jesus is actually in a very difficult position here. If he says yes or no, he loses. If Jesus says, don't stone her, show compassion, show love, show mercy to this sinner, then they can say, you are contradicting the Torah. You are going against Moses. You are breaking the law. Therefore, you are not a true teacher of the Torah because you are contradicting it. We are, however, because we're bringing this situation to you. We're the true teachers. You're not. If he says, yes, I agree with you and Moses, carry on, stone her, then all the people he's teaching will turn against him. Because one of the reasons they're listening to him, because he has a message of love and compassion and not judging and looking, teaching people that don't usually get taught. So the Pharisees win, the scribes win, because the crowds turn against Jesus. Also, in a kind of very sneaky, underhanded way, they could accuse him of encouraging them to stone a woman which would be illegal because only the Romans could kill people. The Jews weren't allowed to actually kill people. Um, and so it would be illegal to stone her so they could get Jesus in trouble with the Romans. So it's a win-win situation for these scribes and Pharisees, whatever Jesus says. And what do you do? He just refuses to acknowledge their question. <laughs> and this is what I love about this story. He's just been asked this incredibly difficult situation, incredible difficult question. He just bends down and starts doodling in the sand. That is Jesus' response. He does not rise to the bait. He refuses to answer their question. And he's still sitting down. So he's still teaching. He's not saying anything. He's not doing anything. I'll talk in a minute about what he possibly may be writing because there's some ideas. But he's still teaching everybody by not responding to their question. He knows what they're trying to do. He knows it's a win-win situation whether it's yes or no for them. So he doesn't answer. So the question is, though, what actually does the Torah say? about this situation. Well, Leviticus 20.10 and Deuteronomy 22.22 basically say the same thing. Um, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. So this shows that there's something wrong going on here. This shows that they are actually being false. Because if they were true teachers of the Torah, followers of the law, then there should be two people there. There should be the man also in front of Jesus. Where is the man? If the woman was caught in adultery, then surely the man must have been too. But there's no one there. 
It's just her. They keep on pestering Jesus for an answer. And his response is, let him without sin cast the first stone. This is actually also from the Torah. This is Deuteronomy 17.7. The hand of the witness shall be the first against him to put him to death, and afterwards the hand of the people. Basically, if you were the witness to the crime, i.e. your words condemned the person, then you actually had to be the first person to throw the stone. So it's the witnesses initiate the execution. And then everybody else joins in. So Jesus is actually saying, well, if you did catch her, then you throw the first stone. If you are witnesses, if you are truly witnesses to this crime, then why are you asking me about it? You should be throwing the first stone if you truly know the Torah. But, of course, he expands that. He doesn't just say, throw the first stone. The one without sin casts the first stone. So, if you witness her guilt, if you're going to condemn her to death, then you should be the ones doing it. But also, what about your guilt? If, you, if she is going to be condemned by her sin, are you willing to face your sin as well? And I think Jesus is actually implying their guilt in this situation, that this is not a straightforward situation, that they are using this woman. Now, I don't know if she actually was caught in adultery or not, but even if she was caught, they're not doing it right. They are bringing the case illegally, you know, like, as we would say, it would be thrown out because of not proper procedure, (laughs) You know, because uh, only her, not the man. So he's saying, well, you're guilty in this situation because there should be a man here. You're guilty in this situation because you're using this poor woman to attack me. You are breaking the law. So if you're not breaking the law, carry on and follow the law. But you are breaking the law, so you're not going to throw a stone, are you? They're not interested in justice. They're interested in getting at Jesus. And he's doing this while still sitting down. He's still teaching. He is teaching these teachers and showing these teachers that they're not very good teachers because they're breaking the very thing that they're supposed to teach. And so they leave. They know this. They know their guilt. They know they haven't done this situation correctly. They know they're just trying to get Jesus. And Jesus has shown that he knows too. And they leave. Interestingly, the oldest people leave first. Maybe they're the ones who are kind of organizing it, the older elder scribes and Pharisees. And the fascinating thing is, this has a ripple effect because all the crowd go away as well. Now, they've got nothing to do with this situation. (laughs) They didn't set up this trap. But Jesus' words were so powerful that they realized their own guilt too from their own lives. And so they leave. And in the end, it's just Jesus still sitting down, still doodling in the sand, and the woman. 
So the only one left there was the one without sin. And the only one there was the true eyewitness who had the right to condemn. All the others, the false witnesses, the tricksters, (laughs) were all gone. But Jesus, again, shows these is upholding the Torah because you could only be condemned on more than two witnesses. If one person says you're guilty, you weren't guilty because then it's just one person's word against another. So now you have one person who has the ability to condemn. There's no one else. So this woman cannot be tried guilty. Jesus knows that. I don't condemn you. But he doesn't condone either. And this is where you have the question, did something happen? (laughs) Because he then says, go, but sin no more. But again, this is Jesus proving those people don't know the Torah. Those people don't know Moses. I do. I'm the true teacher. I'm one who upholds it. I do it right. They don't. Which leads to the obvious question, what did Jesus actually write in the ground, on the ground? Yeah. Nobody knows because it's not recorded. And that might tell you it's probably not important. <laughs> if it was vitally important to the story, <laughs> then maybe it would have been written down. It could be it was just Jesus ignoring them. And just, okay, just doodling <laughs> until they went away or the situation resolved itself or they carried on question. So it could be he was doing nothing. He was just basically making shapes or writing odd words or anything. You know, as we do, sitting down with our pens and paper sometimes, just doodling in the corner. Maybe Jesus was doing that. Maybe it wasn't important. You know, but some people don't like that. You know, that's, there's, there's got to be some meaning. You know? <laughs> uh, there was actually one old tradition from the Armenian translation of the Bible from the 5th century that he actually wrote down all the sins of the people in front of him. <laughs> so he got basically a list of all the scribes and Pharisees' sins, and they went, oh, okay, <laughs> and that's why they scarpered. So that's one idea. I'm not so sure about that. Um, another one, let me turn to this, um, is that he's actually acting out a parable. Because in Jeremiah 17:13, let me read it to you. It says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. So some people think it's kind of like he's acting that out, like your names are in the dirt, like Jeremiah said, because you've forsaken the Lord. It's an idea. Another one might be that he writes down some Old Testament quotes to show them that they are guilty. Um, that he's actually writing down two possible quotes that are connected to this situation. One is Exodus 23.1, which is, You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. Or seven, keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. So some people think that he's basically writing down these, one of these two quotes 
basically saying you are bringing a false charge um, against this woman or you are manipulating the witness kind of idea to condemn me and this woman. Um, uh, one interesting thing with this, especially the second one, in, um, in the Greek version of Daniel, there's these extra little stories, and one of them is about Susanna, who is a very similar situation to this. She's a young woman who is falsely accused of immorality by some older men. And this quote from Exodus is used in that situation. And Daniel, basically, in his cleverness, gets her off the hook, um, basically, in this story. So maybe you think, ooh, similar situation. Maybe he's using this quote. But ultimately, <laughs> we have no idea what he wrote in the ground. Um, if I'm sorry to disappoint, I think he was just doodling. I think he just was just ignoring them in, the, in a very Jesus way. <laughs> you know, this is the man, actually, who usually answers questions by other questions. You know, he doesn't work by their standards and their <laughs> reactions to things. So I think he was just doodling personally. But I do like some of these other ideas. They kind of fit, but maybe they fit too well, the situation. But who knows? I do, it's not important to the story, but I knew I had to say it because probably that's what you want to know. <laughs> and actually, it was the first thing that John said to me <laughs> about this. Well, I'm interested to see what you think, what he wrote in the ground. Well, there's some options. <laughs> but the main thing about these series of talks, obviously, is about people meeting Jesus and how when people meet Jesus, obviously people's lives are transformed, but also you, start, you learn a little bit more about Jesus. And I think in some of these personal interactions that we see in the Gospels, we learn more about who Jesus is. Um, and I think this story tells us a lot about Jesus. One, as I've mentioned, that he is the true teacher of the Torah. He's the one who knows scripture. I think of um, the end of Luke where he's traveling on the road to Emmaus with the disciples and he's the one that opens up the scriptures to the disciples to show them how it's about him. Now, he knows Moses. He knows the Torah. He knows scriptures. And it's not in contrast to his message of love and compassion. It's not a sense of Moses says this, Jesus says this. You know, that Jesus was saying Moses and Moses was saying Jesus. It's all the kind of same. It's not a contrasting message. He fulfilled the Torah completely. You know, he, he never once broke the Torah. Yeah. The people he got angry with were people like the scribes and their interpretations of the Torah. The way they twisted God's word. But he never um, broke it. I think sometimes I say the most radical thing about Jesus is he was the least radical person that ever lived. Because you know, he never, ever broke it. You know, he's the least rebellious person in history. And, and that's what makes him so rebellious in that sense because he's against everyone else because we're all a bunch of rebels. And he, he completely followed the Torah and fulfilled it. And the great thing, of course, that Paul talks about in Romans is that because of that, we do too. That we, through the Spirit, we have the same life that fulfilled God's standards. 
For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Because of this one man, Jesus, who fulfilled the Torah completely, we have that too. Through the Spirit, we have the ability to say no. (laughs) We have the power to say no to sinful desire because he did it for us. Um, I think sometimes we forget that that's available for us. Um, You know, that whole chapter 8 of Romans is basically flesh and spirit. If you try and do it on your own, guess what will happen? (laughs) You'll fail. But don't worry, there's somebody who already has And his choices, his life, his fulfillment is available to you through the Spirit. And that is not in contrast to what Moses was teaching. That is not in contrast to the Old Testament, to the Torah. Again, Paul says in Romans, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery. There we go again. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. Or any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. His message of love and compassion was not in contrast to the teaching of Moses and the law. It was the fulfillment of of the teaching of Moses and the law. Who is Jesus? There is no condemnation in him. He knew their sin. He knew her sin. He knew the sin of all the people in the crowd that were talking to him. Yet, he who was the witness to all of their sin, who was perfect, who was without sin, he refused to cast any stones even though he was the only one with the right to do so. Instead, he calls to her, go, but sin no more. He took her guilt, their guilt, our guilt, to the cross. He died to defeat sin and death, the sin that very so nearly killed her in this situation. He died for that. And through him, it was possible for her to change, to live differently, to go on and to sin no more. And the opportunity was there for the scribes and Pharisees to do the same. And I think it's fascinating. If you read in Acts, it says Pharisees came to faith. Some of these enemies of Jesus later became disciples. The biggest one of all, Paul. A Pharisee of Pharisees, he described himself. Some of these people also took that opportunity and changed because of meeting Jesus. And of course, ultimately, as we read this story, that's available for us too. That we can meet Jesus. We can go and sin no more because he's led that life for us. That perfect fulfillment of the Torah so that we could live that life of love too. Amen.